There was this point early in the pandemic shutdown where every time I sat down to meditate, I'd start crying. It was pretty instantaneous. Sit, close eyes, cue the weeping. And so I actually avoided checking in with myself in this way for a bit. It just felt like too much. Outside of those moments of check-in, I remember feeling quite numb and overwhelmed by all the uncertainty swirling in the air. This was about when we were still bleaching our groceries because we just didn't know anything yet. So that may be why something eventually shifted and I came back to sitting and just letting myself cry. I almost weirdly looked forward to those moments of being with my intense feelings. What seems most remarkable to me now is that I actually had the space to cry every day. My Philly neighborhood was country levels quiet. I don't have children, and my partner and I didn't live together, so I wasn't navigating the friction of being in lockdown with other humans. It was mostly just me and my very quiet dog in our quiet house. As a leader of a business that supports small businesses, everyone around me, my team, our clients, was for very, very legit reasons freaking out. And in retrospect, if I hadn't had that space to be with my feelings, to grieve, I don't know if I could have shown up to help all of those disrupted businesses and support my team. Now, I'm sure that you have experienced loss at some, if not many, points over the past few years. Maybe it was connected to a global event outside of your control, or maybe it was closer to home. The loss of a loved one, the loss of a part of your work, business, hell, even the daily routine of your favorite coffee shop run. And my point is, we're in a time of constant change. This change is happening at the very personal scale and at the global scale, and then at every point in between. Which means that for so many of us, grief is a near constant companion in our lives. And that loss and accompanying grief show up whether we have the space to deal or not. As I've been exploring failure, business closures, and endings during the Summer of Failure series I've been writing these past few months, I knew I wanted to close with a conversation about grieving. I wanted some help understanding what tools we might need during these times, and to think through how we might make space for grief in our lives. How do we navigate all the feelings that come up around loss? How do we make space for grief as an ongoing companion? I'm Kate Tyson, here with a Boss Talks edition of Whiskey Fridays. My guests today are Sebene Selassie and Jenny Patterson. Sebene is a writer, teacher, and speaker who explores the themes of belonging, resilience, and well-being through meditation, creativity, and nature. She is the author of the book, You Belong, and writes the substack, Cosmic Connection. Jenny Patterson is a grief and trauma worker who uses plants, breath, and words to explore survivorhood, bodies, and healing through her business home, Corpus Ritual. Both Sebony and Jenny work with and guide others in grief and grieving through their writing and teaching, and I knew would have so much wisdom to offer on being with grief. Thanks for listening. I'm so 
grateful for you both to be here today and to talk about this, I don't know, interesting, present topic um, about grief and grieving practices. And you're both folks that I have looked to for wisdom on those fronts. And I wanted to start with talking a bit about what is grief and how do we think about it in our lives now, especially in these these times. You know, I noticed that a lot of the messages I've been noticing from dominant culture, at least here in the U.S., tend to point to closure and acceptance as sort of the prescriptions for how we should grieve, maybe correctly grieve. And, and yet, particularly in these times of ongoing crisis, that feels like an extraordinarily unhelpful frame. And so I want to explore this idea of how to think about grief by starting actually with a personal question for both of you and ask you both where and how grief is showing up in your lives lately. And is there a different way to think about experiencing grief? And maybe 7A, you might start. Yeah, well, I just want to start by saying thank you for having me here and having me here with Jenny, who I adore, and to explore something that's um, really poignant and I think is being talked about more, I notice. But at the same time, I feel there's um, a lot of confusion and maybe even disagreement about this. And um, even you naming that there is, um, you know, this uh, kind of push to have closure. And I also witnessed the like opposite side of that where people are lost in their grief. So I just want to name that it's such a challenging topic because I think we've really lost our mooring um, culturally and we've lost our traditional practices around grief. So grief is something that I've been really exploring a lot for the past seven years. My mom died seven years ago, November and that was a huge loss and process for me. And then just to speak to your question, more recently and presently, I've been mourning the end of a marriage, a 14-year marriage, So, which um, is coming up on a year of that decision and process of, of um, physically separating our lives. And then the grief process continues in... Um, actually sort of sorting through all the emotional material around that um, process is the best word I can think of that, you know, it it really is this ongoing exploration. Maybe that's another word that um, I could use. And it's for me, and Jenny knows because we've sort of shared space around this, but for me it's a really important to understand embodied engaged ways of participating with grief that include ritual and voice and movement and space and time. And I think that that for me is what's been missing a lot from the larger conversation around grief, that it becomes only sort of a psycho-emotional process and excludes all of these other elements including the elements and nature and all these other things that can be part of our process with grief. Yeah. So maybe I'll stop there and let Jenny (laughs) chime in. 
Yeah, I mean, same. I'm so happy to be here with both of you just because I've, yeah, I've learned a lot and, and really appreciated both of your work over the years. And uh, I just want to say the funny thing because it felt like it felt like such a yes um, when you first reached out about being on on together because the day after you wrote, or sorry, the day before you wrote, Seb and I had a, and I had just done a session together on grief in this larger breath program that I'm doing, and I was like, "What? Like this is just like, this one is like just like." <laughs> I was like, yes, we we were just doing that, you know. So it's just is really sweet to be here. Um, yeah, I mean, for me, you know, when I first as a as a practitioner, I've always kind of identified as a grief worker because so much of my own life and healing has been in relationship to the grief um, and the ongoing grief and the ongoing mourning, really, that I've encountered in my life because of my life experiences. I grew up in an abusive family, um, really had to hold a lot of what was happening on my own and felt like I was always grieving as a child. I was like a very serious child who really was impacted by what was happening in my family and also like always had an eye on what was happening in the world and felt very worried <laughs> about the future. And I think as I've gotten older, you know, and, and moved through the world in the ways that I have, like the, the ongoing crisis that I've experienced personally and, and then also just, again, having an eye on the world is, is a lot. Um, and the last three, you know, last three and a half years have been challenging for everybody in, in different ways. And I've had some really shocking losses, um, and I would say I'm I'm still in the process. I'm coming up on the anniversary, the two-year anniversary of uh, the death of my dog super suddenly, kind of out of nowhere. And then followed by that, I fell on the stairs and shattered my foot and then had like a very traumatic and homophobic surgery. And the combination of those things was like overwhelming, honestly. And it, it still feels a bit overwhelming still. And it really kind of reconfigured how I feel about grief and how I work with grief for myself. Because in the three months after the injury and the surgery, I wasn't able to walk. Um, I wasn't able to put any weight on my foot. So my my grieving was just like contained to the the space I was in. And it was intense to feel like I couldn't distract myself. I couldn't like go somewhere. I mean, I could go somewhere else, but I couldn't drive. You know, there were all of these limitations around what I could do and where I could go. Um, and then it, it just kind of like shifted what I what I called on for support. You know, a lot of people in my life, like well-meaning dear ones, like saying things to me like, oh, well, how wonderful that you have all these tools at least. And I was like, I can't access any of my tools. Like, I don't want to breathe. I don't want to be alive, honestly. And, you know, the things that I called on were different. And I think I just, I had to kind of find a space, yeah, of like language, like loss of language, because I couldn't find words to like let people know how serious it was for me. Um, and then I had another massive loss this summer, a very dear friend of mine, someone who had like an instrumental role in my sense of safety in the world died suddenly. And yeah, I just felt like I was just back in it again. Like what the 
fuck do I even do with this? On top of, you know, (laughs) climate crisis and the ongoing injustices and violences that so many of us are navigating. It just, yeah, I think for me, grieving has kind of shifted a lot over the years. Um, And I feel like I'm still finding my my way in it. You know, whenever I'm in the thick of it, I almost feel like I know nothing about it, even though I spent my whole my whole life navigating it to some degree. Thank you. Yeah. Oh, there's so many threads I want to pull on now. Um, going back to something, Savannah, you said uh, about sort of the other end of the spectrum, like when you know, we can we can sort of get pulled towards closure, but also get pulled under, maybe. And and I, you know, and I wonder, Jenny, if this is true for you of sort of needing a new toolkit in these times. And I'm wondering kind of what that looks like. Like, is that embodiment? Is that nature? Like, where do we start to look for when the tools we've had are not enough? One of the things I um, have come to appreciate is the distinction between grief and mourning, which often is not made. They're used interchangeably and and they can be used interchangeably, you know, for certain contexts. But generally, grief is all of these emotions and experiences that we feel related to loss and mourning are the practices or rituals or traditions that we use to process the grief, except that we've lost most of our mourning practices as a a larger culture and even as individuals within distinct cultures. So the tools, I think, are a lot about those mourning practices and understanding how we relate to mourning, because I think a lot of times people only relate to the grief and that is that will pull you under because grief is a huge emotional soup that will be connected to so many aspects of loss. You know, the, um, I, I relate so much to the physical things that Jenny brought up because of my metastatic cancer. And there's a recent, you know, I've had 18 years of surgeries and debilitation and, um, deformations of my body and um and and more recent ones like a hip replacement so i grieve my femur ball you know or i grieve um my lung capacity or um uh, my overall physical capacity and like jenny i couldn't walk um for uh the better part of 18 months or so and um and yes like that was a huge loss of capacity and to acknowledge that some people don't have that capacity to begin with, you know. So there there are so many aspects to grief and loss that many of us are dealing with, whether it's physical, emotional, um, or actual death, um, which I think is 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 very different. You know, to to lose a person is very different than to lose a capacity or even to lose a relationship or something like that. Um so for me, you know, been really steeped in this. I I taught a course recently. Jenny was a part of um, around grief, and I I loved exploring other cultural tools and kind of understanding what we've lost as um, moderns and in contemporary society in terms of all of these embodiments that you mentioned. You know, yes, nature, yes, the voice, yes, song, wailing is a big one for me. 
And my interest really peaked around this when my mom died, because even though I am Ethiopian, I'm fairly disconnected from my Ethiopian, I'm, I'm half Eritrean too, and Eritrean cultures. But because of the nature of a parent dying, I was pulled into traditional mourning practices by the community around my mom. And I basically was surrounded by wailing for a year because that's the traditional practice. And it was amazing <laughs> for me because it really helped to move the grief through my body. And it was also fascinating. Um, so one example I've given is that my my mom's best friend lives in the Bronx. And for the year after my mom died, which is the traditional kind of mourning period, every time I, my sister and I went to visit her, she would open the door and start wailing. And she, she, in the meantime, had lost a sister and another best friend. So, you know, she did have a lot of grief, but you, I could tell she was not in that space. She was actually doing a performative action to help facilitate our mourning. And she would, you know, do kind of the prostrations and the wailing and the sounds. And it's quite profound, the experience. And we would cry. And then, you know, she would sort of slow it down. And then we would sit down and have lunch and talk and laugh. And, and you know, she did that every time we went to see her. And that was such a gift. And the gift of these practices that are often done not by, you know, the closest people, but by sort of the outer family or friends or community is, is a service, really. And so what kind of mourning rituals and practices have we lost uh, for ourselves and within community that can help facilitate our, our grieving process? To connect to a lot of your work, Jenny, the first time I did a group breathwork practice, which was years ago, I remember... I think I had just gone through a breakup like two days before, so I was also like <laughs> ready. <laughs> and so, you know, and it was the first time I did this and it was in person at the time. And I remember just sort of being like, you know what, I'm just going to go there and just wailed and wept. Mm -hmm. And it set off this chain reaction. Like there was, you know, the person next to me then started to weep and I could mm -hmm. tell it was sort of moving mm -hmm. around the room. And and afterwards, the group of us, we sort of talked about that, like that, because I, I had so much access to those feelings in the moment. Uh, it almost, I think, gave people permission mm -hmm. to go there. Mm -hmm. And so I maybe want to bring back to, you know, and especially in your work, Jenny, like the, the communal aspect yeah. of this process and uh, like, how do we connect our own experiences with the collective to sort of, you know, better process, I think is maybe what we're talking about. Yeah. I mean, I was thinking about that while Sabine was talking and just, you know, I mean, grieving alone, mourning alone is important. And also it's really important to be in relationship with other people. And I think there, there is so much happening that is so hard for so many people that like, kind of like an endless well to draw from, really. And yeah, I mean, being in, you know, I, I teach only online as of now, just because of the ongoing complications with COVID and, and breathing in a room together. But like, yeah, when we were in those in-person spaces, it's like one person accessing their emotions really does create room for other people to access it. 
And I think that there can be like a lot of shame around how hard something <laughs> is, is for us or impacting us. And even for me in my personal life, it's like, you know, going through these really difficult moments over the last few years, um, I had less and less patience to be around people who can't, just can't let me be in it, you know? And I think like everyone, again, has their own relationship to grief and to loss and to navigating it. But yeah, I just couldn't, if somebody was kind of like short with me or had an expectation around how I should be engaging with them, I was like, I actually can't be in relationship now. And it strengthened my other relationships with people who could just hold the heavy shit, you know, and be in it and not have to try to give me a solution or, yeah, bring closure to it for me. Um, yeah, it changed my relationships. And and it also, like, drew me towards people that, you know, yeah, like, I, I remember this moment last fall. I was I'm navigating long COVID and lots of fallout that some of the stuff I had health wise before, but I was going through like a really fucked up moment on a road trip with my partner and like having a really, my body was doing all kinds of wild things. And I had this one moment where I was like, I just need to hear 7A on a podcast. Just need to like hear somebody who is in the shit and knows it and like is not afraid of it. Because I also think that these times are you know, they're ongoing that we're gonna, I think like for me, even this summer with my friend dying, I was like, Fuck. like, I am not prepared to keep losing and grieving people. I, I don't feel like I know how to do it well. And I had to kind of like work with that a bit because I was like, I actually have all kinds of ways to work with what I'm experiencing. It just might not be in the timeline that other people expect, or they might not understand the necessity of it. But for me, I mean, a big part of my last three years has been being outside. I, I moved from New York City to so-called northern New Mexico, um, very rurally. So, you know, I have a waterfall in my backyard. I have this like gorgeous hike that I can get to fairly easily when I'm able to walk. And so I'm just like outside as much as I can be. And I think, yeah, I think that these moments of like big loss are portals. They really are. Like we we come out on the other side, different people. And um, so there's always a part of me that like, even when I'm in the shit, I can't, there's, as I've gotten older, there's a part of me that's like, Jenny, this is like a really acute special time, actually. It's like a really powerful moment if you can just stay with it. I really appreciate, Jenny, you're bringing us back um, again to this place of not bypassing the experience. Yeah. That's so much about why people just want to go to a place of closure because grief is so uncomfortable. And you naming, you know, really having that capacity to be with it and protect yourself from those who can't. <laughs> we are composting this material and then sharing it with others. And it's really important that we understand it really well. And then the, and then the other side of it is like, how do we guide people? You know, because we, we all need to guide each other because as yeah. you name, this is not going to get easier. It may get easier for us, but externally, 
you know, we can all read the writing on the wall environmentally, socially, politically, that things are just getting more and more intense. And so how how do we serve as clear and conscious um, carriers of the messages that people need? And, and we need to be able to to go through it to do that. And it's so delicate, you know, it's such a delicate balance. And um, I I can't say I know how, like I'm, I'm still mm-hmm. exploring and experimenting and understanding. And it's so important that we have these conversations like this as we do that, right? That was going to be one of my questions, actually, because I know, you know, you both facilitate and teach on this topic, which is partly why I asked you here, of course. But um, I think about this with myself, like, especially like 2021, I think every one of my team members had some big, like cataclysmic, deep life shit thing happen. And I just, you know, by the end of the year as the leader holding all that space, I was like wrecked. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, and you know, and I know this from the folks I work with and I'm in contact with too, like, we're all kind of trying to figure out how to hold space for each other and all of these things. And some of us take on more of that, uh, I don't know, leadership or channel or teacher responsibility. And it's a lot mm-hmm. uh, to try and hold in both for ourselves and others. And so I don't know what the question is there. I think I'm just a- echoing uh, the, I don't know what I'm doing here either <laughs> <laughs> part of it, but you know, I think that's yeah. really real. Yeah, we're making the road by walking. You know, yeah. we're we're not saying that we we have a clear idea of the path, which I think many traditions and you know spiritual groups and religions have claimed. And I really feel like that's um, misguided and misleading for folks. But to actually acknowledge that we're walking together and that um, some of us have may have a clearer idea of this route or this trail and what's what's ahead. Um, but we're we're doing it, um, you know, as as community and as a larger human community as well. And I think there are a lot of um, a lot of great examples out there. I was I was working on a friend's film this weekend, um, an Irish filmmaker named Paul Rowley, and we were just talking about um, the amount of loss that gay men have experienced. Mm-hmm. Um, and we're of a generation that was a little bit after the AIDS crisis in the sense that we, you know, we didn't have our entire friend group wiped out. But um, still, you know, even in his friend groups, so many deaths, AIDS-related and not AIDS-related, and yeah. the the capacity for, you know, art-making and meaning-making and community-building that was a part of that is just phenomenal, you know? Yeah. It's it's really astounding. And so we, we or he's, he's actually making a film for Gays Against Guns which was founded after the Pulse Massacre. And, um, you know, just looking at gun violence communities and, you know, parents who've lost children to gun violence and sort of the the empowered ways that people are harnessing their grief into meaning and into world building and into community care. And um, that 
you know, not to have to make everything a project, but the purposefulness that can come out of grief, I think, mm-hmm. is really profound. And yeah, and it's funny you mentioned, not funny, funny, but the Pulse massacre, because I was actually thinking about that in relationship to like, yeah, being a person that works with other people in their grief. And then these moments that are just so massive collectively that like, it's very hard to like, just go to your job (laughs) and like, do like, go do your job. And at that time I was doing the work I do now, but I was also doing some freelance work. And I have this memory of like being so affected and then having to go to work and just having like feeling like if I was going to be there, I'd have to turn it off somehow. And I had no idea how to turn it off. And, you know, I think that certainly some workspaces still require things being turned off to function. But I also think that there are more spaces now and more people that are like recognizing that we have to kind of, we have to take a minute maybe sometimes and stop pushing forward with like the social media strategy or, you know, like whatever is due. Um, and I think, yeah, it's really, I mean, it's challenging. It's like I go back and forth because I've, I've had these moments. So this summer I started, um, I got asked to create a program for 16 weeks um, about working with breath that 7A was a part of. And it was starting, I think, like a week and a half after my friend died. And I was having these moments of being like, I cannot fucking believe that I have to start this huge thing where I'm just supposed to be like a person who is okay. And, and then simultaneously, I was like, wow, I can't imagine a better way to be entering into this space because I just felt so raw, you know, like I felt like, yeah, really raw. And I felt like coming together in spaces is kind of the only answer sometimes because Mm -hmm. I'm certainly not alone in what I'm navigating, you know, and yeah, it's back to that idea of like getting permission for some, for some reason, sometimes of like letting it be as big as it needs to be. Um, and, and then there's other times, you know, where after my dog died and the foot surgery and all of that, you know, I, it was very scary because, you know, I, I work for myself. I'm the only person that does any of the work that I do. Um, and I just was not in a place to be sitting with somebody else um, navigating hard stuff. And so I had to, I stopped doing breath work completely for a good four months, which was incredibly scary because, you know, I'm like a sliding scale practitioner. I have an herbal product line that I was still able to physically do, but yeah, it's been a, it's been it's been a time of like trying to really understand when I just need to like take a beat and and not and not be in a support role. Um and yeah, it was it it called for big changes that moment and I I did them and I survived them. So, you know, it's nice to remember that I can pause some parts of my work because sometimes it's yeah, it felt it felt incredibly unethical for me to just continue business as usual. Like I just I just was like I cannot take people's money right now to like I'm having a hard enough time sitting with my own shit, you know? So, yeah, it's been it's required some shifting over the years, I think. And yeah, then we we do, we compost it. We come back and you know, we're able to to be with it with people because we've 
been with it for ourselves, maybe. I think part of that composting, you know, we compost so that we can grow like delicious, beautiful things. And I think that the sort of beauty and joy, I I feel like I was too sort of capitalistic in my like, find a purpose, do stuff with this. But (laughs) it, it, and I, when I think of the, the ways, let's say, ACT UP or um, Queer Nation or Black people in general, you know, <laughs> have composted um, the, the grief and, and the loss and the pain into just joyous beauty, into creative genius is um, so much of the power of this because loss is natural you know, and and pain is natural and trauma is natural. Oppression is not natural. And and that's some of what our grief and pain is around. But, um, you know, losing people and relationships and things and pets and all of that is is natural. My my dog died the day um, the city locked down. The day before, actually, we were the last people to go in, which was just so intense to like yeah. be grieving at the same time as, as you know, the the whole city was losing its mind. Um, yeah, what what we do with that is like the glory of of what it means to be human, mm-hmm. you know, and mm-hmm. the and the the gorgeousness and. Um, the power of what it means to be human. And I, I really don't want that to like be sort of shut out of the com- a conversation of grief. Yeah. Right. Yeah. One of the things I've been thinking of and I sort of shared in my notes to you both is that there's this way that grief is completely disruptive and and really like anti-productive in the economic sense. Like Jenny, you're talking about the ways that you had to shift your business and make space and turn money down, like your livelihood down in order to make space for yourself and your grief process. But there is this other piece of it, I think, which is that uncommodified kind of joy and productivity and like, uh, you know, purpose, I think that's the word that you use that is such a better word that can come out of it too. And so like, I feel like there's this really interesting tension there of sort of the kinds of purpose we can put ourselves towards maybe and the kinds that maybe we can't or we shouldn't. Mm-hmm. Does yeah. that make sense? It makes me think of, you know, traditional grieving processes are really long. Like, you know, you like to take seven days off, you know, almost every culture around the world has at least a week of nothing, you know, just eating and crying and wailing and laughing and dancing and rituals and (laughs) um, in offerings, you know, and relating. We haven't even talked about how grief connects us, especially with death, to other realms. You know, it's, it's really making us see so clearly sometimes for the first time that this is not just it's not just this yeah right this material plane of five senses is 
is not all there is. And even the smallest kid starts to wonder about that when someone dies, right? Yeah. Where, where did they go? Yeah. <laughs> and, and so how grief really opens us up to so much magic and mystery. And um, yes, it's, it's a natural part of life. And it's a, like you're describing, like it can be an expanding sort of transformative part process too. Yeah. I mean, I hear from a lot of folks that I work with, um, you know, when they're trying to navigate a loss or a death or some sort of big, big grief, you know, a constant refrain is like, if I were to fully feel this, I wouldn't be able to do anything else. And it's true to some degree, you know, I mean, these big losses, they should stop, the world should stop. And the, the frequency with which things are happening, you know, it's like I had this ex- <laughs> had this experience uh, that's not very uncommon to most people at this point. We had a fire about five to seven miles from our house um, a couple weeks ago. And it was a Friday and I was exhausted and I was like, can't wait to just fucking relax this weekend. And that did not happen because we immediately got put on evacuation notice. And I was just thinking about like how wild it is that, you know, we were on evacuation notice for a handful of days and it, you know, by Monday, it started to be clear that it, we weren't going to have to leave, but like we were still on the list, you know? And the idea was that I was like, the, the exact wording was like, be prepared and prepared to leave. And I was like, how do I how am I supposed to be pre- like packed and prepared to leave and then also be like, well, I've got a meeting at 11 a.m. And, you know, like, and I was actually talking with a few other folks um, connected to the work that I do. And another person was like navigating the recent hurricane on the East Coast. And we were all just like, this is kind of nuts. Like, yeah. how to go from that into just like the work week, you know, and and especially with remote what it brings work. up too yeah it's yeah. like in in some ways too you know we we're speaking I, i'm assuming yes kate you said you're in vermont so um you know that's the reality for so much yeah. of the world right? yeah. Oh, yeah whether it's environmental or political yeah to find meaning and routine um and joy and um, beauty, even in the midst of turmoil and chaos and yeah. potential, you know, threats of violence or destruction. Totally, I know. We found I found myself in that same Vermont. Almost the whole state flooded in yeah. July, and my partner and I live on a second floor apartment on a hill. So, like, our materially sort of at home, we were fine. And we found ourselves sort of the day after, like all the roads around us flooded, like washed out because we live on mostly around dirt roads. And for some reason, Karina and I were like hell bent on getting to this co-working space like the day because we were like, well, we have meetings. We have to do them <laughs> because the people that were out there in the world were unaffected, like her coworkers, the person I was yeah. meeting with. And so we we're like, well, we have to do it for them. And then so we did all this driving that was probably kind of dangerous like we shouldn't have been on the roads and then we got to the co-working space and there was two feet of water on the floor and so we were like oh shit okay and then had this really like what are we doing like why do we think the world can't stop for us 
even though, because we were like, well, we're fine. And then it turned out we weren't fine because the rest of the week, I think we were kind of a mess just because of everything that was going on around us. And I mean, to your point, it's like, how do we, it's like, we can't really plan for this anymore, except it's also happening all the time. Yeah. And so our work has to shift and have more space in it, maybe. Yeah. Um, and that sort of like always busy, productive thing, it just it feels untenable at this point. It's like, how do we even have space for that? And it's hard because, you know, we we're embedded in systems that don't forgive. Um, there isn't necessarily the the same kind of net. So even I worked in refugee camps in West Africa for a year and I was um, in a Muslim majority country. And so not only were things constantly derailed by, you know, 10,000 refugees coming to the border or whatever, you know, emergency was happening that day, but um, also things like Ramadan, which seemingly <laughs> like half the workers were like exhausted and not yeah. as productive during the day. And um, and just the, the mindset shift that I had to make in terms of... Um, uh, what I wanted to get done and what my agendas were and what was really happening, but also um, witnessing how there was a different sense, not that there was an exploitation or, you know, corruption, which there was a lot of that, but there was also a lot of community care. And so when things did get disrupted, there were not necessarily government nets um, or even UNHCR nets, but there were the, the nets of community and people. And um, yeah, that's really different than I think how a lot of us live here. I kind of want to take this in a little bit of a different direction. Yeah. Sabine, I told you I wanted to ask you about the relationship You've been writing a lot about the erotic lately in some really powerful ways and have been kind of working their way through my consciousness. And um, and in particular, you were writing about erotic disruption recently. And I think you said you got a lot of unsubscribes on your emails about that, which I thought was great. <laughs> um, and you wrote about uh, Audre Lorde saying that the erotic is rooted um in the power of our unexpressed or unrecognized feeling. And it struck me that grief can kind of be expressed, you know, that uh, talked about in that way too. And I'm wondering if you wouldn't mind speaking a bit about what you mean by erotic disruption and if there is any connection for you between grief and the erotic. Yeah, you know, to give credit to Audre Lorde and her ovular essay, and the erotic as power, uh, uses of the erotic, the erotic as power, that she's talking about not just the sexual, as yeah. you were sort of intimating, that it's really an idea of the erotic that embraces the sensual aspect of life. And that when we can really engage with our senses and not just our thinking minds about things, that we're more fully expressed. And that includes the sexual, but it's really engaging with life in this way that is really present. You know, it can sort of tie in a lot of sort of the things that are circulating now, like quote unquote mindfulness, which is the worst title name for <laughs> being aware and present, but really that just embodied awareness, that full presence. And I think that 
that other side of grief of getting lost and the cutting off from grief of thinking that it needs to be um, one and done, they're both disconnected from the central experience of grief. You know, one is sort of drowned in um, people talk about it like it's feeling, but it's not I don't feel like it's true sensory experience. It's more like a flooding Mm. that um, has a numbness to it in a sense because it can't distinguish um, the moment to moment experience sort of lost in this overall kind of amorphous experience of sorrow or whatever it is. But that's not what's happening, actually, because that, that's not how the sensory body works. You can't be lost completely in only one sensory feeling. And so for me, um, the erotic disruption is really um, starting to tune into what's happening. So with grief, it would be like, what, what are you really experiencing? Because sometimes it's laughter. You know, like even as my mom was dying, like I was actually talking to her. She, my mom died in London. She, she had a stroke in Ethiopia. I took her to London. I went to Ethiopia. I took her to London because she couldn't get care there. And she died in London. And I was talking to that same best friend in the Bronx. And I was telling her that she, my mom was uncommunicative, but she had been somehow mean to me. Like she still managed <laughs> to be mean to me. And her, my, her friend's <laughs> response was, well, it sounds like she's at least coming back. Like, <laughs> like that's your mom. Um, which is hilarious, you know? And so even in those moments, like we can have these other sensory experiences of joy or laughter or um, so to really to know our experience, um, you know, takes that capacity of presence and awareness that uh, many people don't have because they're just going forward in their life and on the hamster wheel. And so, yes, grief feels like this overwhelming sort of amorphous experience. Um, and so, yeah, the erotic disruption for me, I, I named it that because I'm going through menopause and I had to really start to distinguish my sexual experience as a menopausal woman in differentiation from my non-menopausal, my, you know, my years of fertility. And they're really different sexual experiences. And I, I've been so conditioned by decades of having a cycle that I, I didn't really understand what my body is like now and it and it requires paying attention in that way and so yes i think we can bring that same kind of awareness and attention to our experience of grief yeah i mean i love that you brought up to just the like the laughter and the absurdity i mean that's very much you know even when i have been in like the roughest spots of the last few years it's fucking funny, you know, like it's just <laughs> like it's just like, yeah, the absurdity of being alive, you know, just yeah. the like the crispness of like what happens in a life, you know, and all of the things that we just kind of have to keep figuring out. And yeah, I think absurdity and awe have been like really big pairs for me with mm. grief, you know, I think like. I mean, even like, oh, it's something terrible. You know, like my girlfriend and I drove down to see the fire just because we were like, wait, how close? 
because it looked so close and there was not no, enough news yet. And we were driving and I was just like jaw dropped because like, I mean, it's beautiful and terrifying at the same time yeah. to watch a smoke plume. It's yeah. like these like radiant shades of gray that are just like swirling. And it's like, I mean, I feel like moved even. Th I'm like, it is such a force. And it just like really puts me in my right size, you know, where I'm just like, I cannot control that, you know? And mm. like, I mean, the terrible things sometimes bring me awe, but the beautiful things too, and how, how closely they're related, you know, if we're really paying attention. Yeah, that's beautiful. The sort of rabbit hole I've been in the summer is about endings and failure. And and in a lot of sense, I think people needing to make difficult choices about wrapping something up, saying goodbye, deciding that they, they're going to intentionally fail or like not do something anymore. And I've noticed with a lot of folks, there's almost this can be this sense of stuckness and sort of staying with the pain that you're familiar with, maybe, or the thing you're familiar with that you know needs to change. Because either there's this sort of uncertainty and overwhelm of the uncertainty of, like, well, what will be on the other side? Mm. What will I have to process around that loss or that decision? And then sometimes also this, like, I don't have time for that. Mm. Like, this is going to open a whole can of worms for me, and I don't have time for that. And so I'd love to hear both your thoughts on that sort of like contending with the overwhelm when we do have a choice about it, so to speak. Well, I'll just name really quickly that it's I, I taught this course about grief this summer and I didn't know what my next offering was going to be, but I quickly realized that I wanted to teach something about change. Mm -hmm. Because I mm -hmm. realized how exactly what you're saying, how intimately they're connected and how um, you know, I have a Buddhist background and change and impermanence are sort of this core teaching, but even more so than a lot of people understand, like it's considered the most important teaching in a lot of the classical teachings and writings. And, and I was sort of coming from this premise that like change is so difficult. It's like the thing that we're always avoiding, you know, and, and grief points to that so directly and so um i think finding our way of intentionally and consciously um working with change and the cycles of of life in general is is such a powerful support for for our grief and loss and mourning processes but also just for all of the things we're talking about. Like mm -hmm. our world is rapidly changing. It's going to continue. Yeah. We can, you know, sort of lament about that as much as we want, but we also need to catch up with like, well, how do we meet this change? And what does that look like? And how do we work with it in a way that's um, emergent and uh, community-centered and uh, focused on collective well-being and, uh, you know, all, all of that. Yeah, I mean, I think I feel similar, you know. I think 
it can feel really hard to kind of have to keep encountering the changes needed. And then also like taking a, a larger view, it's like we all, each of us have encountered so much change throughout our lives in all kinds of ways. And I think when we're in the thick of that moment again, it's hard to see the other side. And I think that's okay, you know, because I think that the process is Sometimes we can't see the other side and sometimes there might be lots of different directions for the other side that we, we can move towards. And I think for me, historically at least, and maybe a little less so these days, like I, I used to really have a lot of, um, I guess I still do, a lot of appreciation for like staying in the shit. And I used to teach this writing workshop, multi-week workshop. I taught it at like needle exchanges and a LGBTQ center and with survivors of sexual violence. And I called it wound dwelling, this idea of like staying in the wound if we need to for a little bit. And even to what Sebony was saying, like letting that wound be something that's generative, you know, I mean, you know, not on command and not, not through production necessarily, but like the value of staying in that place when we need to, and then learning through that process when we want to move out of it. And yeah, again, I think it comes back to moving beyond the pressures of what people think grief looks like, the process of it. And yeah, like what, what changes on the other side, you know, because sometimes the, the changes are really incredible. I mean, I feel simultaneously completely overwhelmed and disconnected from everything that's happening. And then at other moments, I'm like, wow, I feel so connected to everything. And I think like letting those things exist at once, you know, has been important for me. And yet collectively, it's like, we're just gonna, I think that's where a lot of the struggle in all kinds of ways is coming from is the unwillingness to change, like to allow change to happen. And there's really good reasons why it's hard. Yeah. <laughs> but, you know, I think it's also like, you know, I mean, even with the last three and a half years, the amount of change that people have encountered, again, it's massive. And in some ways, it's like it's a resource to know that we can do it because we've already had to over and over. Um, I'd love to ask you one last question, which is what's the best way for someone listening to connect to more of your work on this topic and also just more of your work in general? My website is just my name, com, And the best way to connect to me is through my Substack, which you can find from my website. And I send out uh, newsletters on the new moon, the full moon, and the last quarter moon. Highly recommend Sebenay's Substack. I love it. Same. Um, <laughs> yeah, I think for me, my website's corpusritual.com and I'm corpusritual on Instagram. And I am doing a writing and breath workshop on October 3rd, but it might not be out by then. But I'm going to I'm hopefully going to keep offering them because I I took a break from it because I was in my shit. And now I'm like, you know, what? let's uh, get back into that space together. Um, so, yeah, I'm going to be doing more of that. And then my sub stack uh, that I call Love What Survives is. I don't know what's going on there, but it's a meandering exploration of grief, I would definitely say, and change and loss. And so, yeah, that's where I'll be. I'll link all that in the show notes. But I also heartily recommend both of your sub stacks and writing there. I love reading them. All right. Thank you both. 
Thank you. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening to Whiskey Fridays. You can find Sebene's work at sebenesalassi.com and Jenny's work at corpusritual.com. They both have fantastic substacks, which you should definitely subscribe to. If this episode resonated with you in any way, we'd love for you to share it with a friend. As always, you can find me, Kate Tyson, at wonderwellconsulting.com and at katetyson.substack.com. I love hearing your thoughts and, of course, your experience of living in these tumultuous times. Feel free to reach out to me via email at kate at wanderwellconsulting.com. Talk to you next time. Mm-hmm.